So a couple is getting ready for a very fancy night out. They spend a lot of time getting prepared and all dressed up. And they had uh, made arrangements for a cab to pick them up to take them to this very exclusive place to have their dinner together. And so they got their clothes on. They got everything ready. They put the cat out. The cab showed up in front of the house. And as they were opening the door, the cat ran back in. Well, they didn't want to keep the cab waiting and lose their ride, but they didn't want the cat to be in the house because they knew they were going to be gone a long time. So he said to his wife, you go and hold the car and I'll go find the cat and put it out and join you. So she goes out to the cab, but then she realizes, I don't want the cab driver to know that the house is going to be empty all night long. So she says to him, my husband will be here in just a moment. He just went upstairs to to say goodbye to my mother. And a few minutes later, he joins them in the car, and he says, I'm sorry that took so long. Stupid old thing was hiding under the bed, and I had to poke it with a coat hanger to get her to come out. (laughs) You see, it's not always easy to get somebody to move. But that's why we need to stay open to the calls of God. Because when God calls in Scripture, He never calls to say, I need you just to sit still and wait and twiddle your thumbs for a while. God calls us because He has something for us to do. There's always a purpose for His calls. Even though we can't always see clearly what that purpose is in the moment. But when we step out in faith, when we pick up the phone, and when we live in obedience, we are always able to look back and say, I'm so glad God called in time. And so we're studying what it means to be called of God. And we've seen the call to Abraham and the call to Moses. And this morning we're going to study the call to Esther. So find your Bibles. and Let me help you find Esther. Right in the middle of your Bible there's this real big book called the Psalms. And right in front of it is a real big book called Job. And right in front of Job is a small book called Esther. Find Esther and find chapter 4. Because we're going to look at her amazing call in just a moment. But let me set the context. This is in a period that was called the captivity. The people of God had been unfaithful. They had been conquered by the Babylonians. And they had been taken uh, east to the land of Babylon. For for 70 years they had been captives. But when the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, the Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland and many chose to do so. But some had become so acclimated to life in Persia that they stayed. Now the king of Persia at this time was a man named Xerxes. And Xerxes loved a good party. He was the most powerful man in the world. And he called all of his royal uh, governors in for a big party at his capital. And the party lasted for six months. That's a party. And then he decides to have a seven-day after-party party. And during this time, rather inebriated, he decides to call out his wife Vashti to show off her beauty to all of his officials. It probably was not a very noble and decent thing for him to do. And she declined. Well, this infuriated the king and his nobles who thought, we can't have the word getting out through all the kingdom that women don't have to obey their husbands. So they give him the counsel to depose Vashti. She is banished 
But now he has no queen. And so the officials give him this advice. Call all of your 127 provinces. Have them all send the best looking virgin to the capital. And they have their version of American Idol. And it's the job of all these girls to doll themselves up and impress the king. And whoever makes the best impression will be the new queen. One of the virgins picked was a Jewish girl named Esther. She was an orphan. Her mom and dad had died. They had chosen not to go back to the homeland. We don't know why. So she still lives in Persia. She's been adopted by her cousin Mordecai, who is a high-ranking official for the king. When Esther is chosen, and by the way, this was against her will. Mordecai says, don't tell them your ethnicity. Don't let them know you're a Jew. But God's favor was on her, and she was clearly uh, beloved by all those who were preparing for the big pageant. And at the end of a year, Esther is chosen to be the new queen. Now, right here, we have to deal with something that's hard to believe. That there has ever been a culture in history where men were so superficial that middle-aged men would get rid of their first wife to impress their peers with their young new second wife. I can't believe men have ever been that shallow. But that's what the story is asking us to believe. One of Xerxes' most important counselors was a man named Haman. He was a descendant of a people that had long been Israel's enemy. Haman is an egomaniac, and when he walks by, he wants people to bow. And most will, but Mordecai won't. He bows only to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this infuriates Haman, and he overreacts and says, I don't just want to wipe out Mordecai, I want to wipe out all the Jews that have been the enemies of my people for centuries. And through a series of deceptive manipulations, he gets Xerxes to sign this edict that on a specific date in the future, all the Jews are fair game to be annihilated. Mordecai finds out about this. And he's distraught. And all the Jews are distraught. And by the way, let me tell you what's going on here. This is Satan is simply using Haman as his tool to try to disrupt God's plan. Because God had said all the way back in Genesis, through Abraham's descendants, I'm going to send a deliverer and a redeemer that's going to undo everything that Satan ruined at the fall. So Satan is thinking, if I kill off the people of God, then the deliverer of God can't be born. So Haman is just a tool of the devil. But an effective one. The interesting thing is that Esther doesn't even know this is going on. All over the nation, her people are tearing their clothes, putting on sackcloth, mourning and fasting. And she doesn't even know. She's protected and insulated in the palace, living the pampered life. Mordecai is at the king's gate in mourning and she finds out why he's wearing these terrible clothes. She sends him some good clothes and says, find out why he's so unhappy. And that's where we pick up our story. Chapter 4, verse 7. She sends her aide, Hathik, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. See, up to this point, Mordecai has told Esther to hide her ethnicity. But now he says, this is the time, Esther. This is your moment. Let him know that his favorite is a Jew. But Esther had good reason not to want to take this call. Let's read that find out why. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. See, you might think since she's queen, she can just show up in his presence anytime she wants. That's not how it worked. He still has a harem. He still has scores of other women. And just the fact that she's queen doesn't guarantee intimacy with the king. In fact, she points out it's been 30 days since he's asked to see me. Which, what she's implying is, I'm not the flavor of the month. You see, in that culture, the only thing worse than going, uh, than not going to the king's court when he summoned you, that's what got Vashti in trouble. The only thing worse than that was showing up in the king's court when he had not summoned you. Anyone who does that has a death wish. Esther says, you need to call somebody else. And then comes one of the most powerful texts in the Old Testament, in my opinion. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now what Mordecai is implying is, Esther, all these coincidences in your life, that your family didn't take you back to Jerusalem, that you happened to wind up in my house and I'm a high official with the king, that you just happened to get chosen for the beauty pageant, and that you just happened out of all the beautiful women to be the one picked. All these coincidences were really the providences of God. See, you are not where you are for the reason that the king thinks. You are where you are for the purposes of the king of kings. So don't let your trappings and don't let your privilege blind you To the real purpose for your life. And look at how this amazing woman responds. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. 
Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She realized she was called just in time for this time. And she courageously picked up the phone. Now, if you don't know the end of the story, you need to go home today and read the rest of the book of Esther. It is an amazing story. Suffice it to say that through a series of brilliant uh, uh, maneuverings on her part, her people are saved and she becomes a great hero to Israel. But what I want to ask today is how does her call relate to our time? See, I believe we were made to live life with purpose. That to be fully alive and not just collecting paychecks and cutting the grass till we die. We need to live on mission. I think there is a hunger deep inside every man and woman to have a reason to be alive. You might remember an advertisement several years ago. In the first scene, this little baby's being born and his proud daddy says, We're going to name him Stanley and someday he's going to be President of the United States. In the second scene, you see him getting married and the father of the bride says, I know you'll want to go to medical school, but I want you to join the family business. In the third scene, you see him and his wife at some exclusive resort. They have clearly made a lot of money and they have lived a sweet life. And in the last scene, you see a preacher over a casket saying Stanley was one of the most uh, beloved members here at Shady Nook Rest Home. He was our best gym run player and a few people knew he had lower cholesterol than anybody else. And in the last scene, you hear these words. Isn't it sad to live your whole life... And never make a ripple. And never rock a boat. Join the Peace Corps. They understand. We were made to live for a reason. And here's what happens. Life needs a purpose. And if you don't find a legitimate one, you will quickly embrace a substitute. And I think that is one of the chief warnings of the book of Esther. And I want you to write this down. Her story warns us, beware the seduction of the default mission. What do I mean by that? The default mission is the place your life drifts to if you put it on autopilot. If you fail to live for the mission for which you were created, your life will drift to another mission, a default mission. And often you don't even realize you've gone there. It's like the story I heard of the two guys, they're old men, and they're in Walmart. And their carts run into each other, and the first one says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking for my wife. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. And the second old man says, that's funny, I'm looking for my wife too. And the first man says, well, maybe I can help you find her. What she look like? And the second guy says, well, she's 27. She's tall, got long red hair, blue eyes. She's beautiful. What does your wife look like? First guy says, it doesn't matter. Let's go find your wife. 
It is so easy for us to get off mission and onto a default mission that is not the reason for which we were made. You see, Xerxes had a mission. God gave him a kingdom to rule. That was his mission, to be just and fair and govern wisely. But he drifted into a default mission to see how he could seek his own pleasure and throw a bigger party than the last one. Haman had a mission, to be a wise and decent and noble counselor to help his king govern fairly all the peoples of the earth. But he drifted to a default mission called image projection. Esther had a default mission she could have sold out for. She could have lived the rest of her life as eye candy. Which, by the way, is what the world tells beautiful women they're made for. Just be eye candy on the arm of the most powerful man in the world. And live in ease and comfort and never even have to know about the sufferings and the injustice that go on on the streets. The Bible is full of warnings about the default mission. Jesus said a man had a really good year. He couldn't even put all his crop in his barn. What an obvious call to mission. Take all the excess that you don't even need and go share it with the poor. But he drifted to a default mission. I'll build bigger barns. And I'll throw a big party. And the Bible called him a fool. What's your default mission? Where does your life drift when you stop thinking and living intentionally? I guess I've had several, but I I know I had one I really wrestled with as a young man. Because I felt a call early in my life to be a preacher. It's the first thing I remember ever feeling called to be. But I also saw how churches treated preachers when I was a boy. They were typically underpaid, constantly criticized, and fired every two years. And I wasn't going to let that be my life. So when I went to ACU, I don't know if many of you know this, I was not a Bible major. I was a speech major. Both of my degrees are in communication. You know why? Because I wasn't going to put my hands, my life in the hands of a fickle church. I was going to go to law school. I would have been a good lawyer. Or I was going to get a Ph.D. in speech and teach at a state school. Now, I was still going to preach on the side. But I had my plan. And my plan was my default mission. What's yours? See, maybe it's no coincidence that you are here at this time to hear this message. Three things I want you to learn from Esther's story. Here's number one. At this time, God has a purpose for you and for me. See, Esther had good reasons not to like her time. She had good reasons not to like the circumstances in life that put her where she was. She could have been thinking, why me? Why didn't my mom and daddy take me back to Jerusalem with all the other pilgrims and I wouldn't even be in this mess? Why would they have to die? Why did I have to get picked? I never wanted to marry this old fool in the first place. 
She had a lot of reasons not to like her moment and her time. And you probably do too. Maybe some of it is your bad choices, but maybe some of it is the bad choices of people that put you where you are. But I believe every person has a, for such a time as this. And instead of complaining about this time, maybe you should start claiming God's grace to be who He wants you to be and to do what He wants you to do in this moment. Because we are all called in time. See, I can learn from past generations. Maybe my life will inspire future generations. But I can only live and serve this one. This is my time. You don't get to choose your time. You get to choose your answer to God's call in your time. One of my favorite statements about a biblical character is in Paul's sermon in Acts 13. And he says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. That's what you want on your tombstone. That you served God's purpose in your generation. So think about all of the coincidences in your life that have put you right now where you are. And start asking God for wisdom. How can you discern your purpose for this time? I've gotten a lot of emails from people in the last few weeks who've been impressed by God through the preaching of these sermons on calling. Last week, for example, Debbie Franklin came and told me that God has been calling her. And Debbie's had a tough past, including a failed marriage and health issues. And through it all, God has been calling her back to Himself. And part of that calling has been a for some reason, for the last several years, she said, a heart for China. And she, she was thinking, yes, yeah, someday, someday, someday I might go see China. And she said she woke up recently in the middle of the night and the Holy Spirit was saying, this is the moment. Right now, I want you to go to China. So she calls Leslie Altruck at Let's Start Talking. Turns out just this Friday there's a group going to China. But Leslie says, you'd have to raise over half your support in just a week. God sent her her entire support in a week. So she's leaving Friday. As one final confirmation, she called her 80-something-year-old aunt and Tyler to tell her that she was going to China for a couple of weeks. And her aunt said, Debbie, I'm not surprised. She said, why not? When you were 16 or 17, you told me that you wanted to be a missionary to China. A conversation she doesn't recall. A mission that had laid dormant for 40 years that God awoke again. You weren't born and you weren't reborn to spend your life treading water. At this time, God has a purpose for you and me. Lesson number two. At no time is God hindered. By my reluctance. 
Our refusal to answer the call in no way keeps God from accomplishing His will. Did you hear what Mordecai said to Esther? If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from someplace else. Well, what place? Mordecai didn't even know. He didn't know what God was going to do. But here's what he did know. God had made a promise. He had entered into covenant with Abraham and his descendants to raise up a people and to protect them so that a Redeemer could come. And God wasn't going to break his promise. So Mordecai says to Esther, you can cooperate with God's plans or he'll find a plan B. But God's going to do what God's going to do. Are you going to partner with him or not? Satan can't do anything to stop the fulfillment of God's agenda, including tempting his people to do nothing. If the Lord has to do it himself, he will. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, the Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, so he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm. And his justice sustained him. See, Mordecai's God is as invincible as he was invisible. So what would have happened if I had given my life to my default mission? Would the purposes of God have been overthrown? The gospel would still have been preached. I'm the one that would have missed out on the blessing. And what if our church drifts into default mode and makes just coming to church and paying a few bills our mission? We forget about helping the poor. We forget about planting churches. We forget about our University of Africa. Do you think God's agenda is going to be handicapped? God will raise up other churches. God will accomplish what He's going to accomplish. The question is, do we want to receive the blessing of partnering with Him? And I know a lot of you aren't from churches of Christ, but a lot of you are. And I get asked this all the time by people wringing their hands. Oh, what's going to happen to churches of Christ? I'm so worried about the future of churches of Christ. God isn't. We are some of God's people. We have never been the sum of God's people. We can partner with God and we can be an active, fruitful fellowship or He will use others. But God will accomplish what He is going to accomplish. The issue is, are we going to miss the thrill of the ride? But God will reach all His declared aims. That's His call. At no time is God hindered by our reluctance. Here's lesson number three. At all times, I need others to keep me on mission. Esther's not the only hero of the story. Where did she find the courage to go before the king at the risk of her life? Maybe she found it from the man who raised her. A man that wouldn't bow to anyone but his Lord God. You see, every life needs another set of eyes that will warn against the default mission. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. The images of swords clashing together, keeping the edges sharp and not dull for the purpose for which they were made. 
It's one reason why we believe so much here in our church in small groups and we're encouraging you to try them. Because as great as fellowship is out in the foyer or in the back of a Bible class, that's not where the kind of conversations happen that keep us on mission. Who's your Mordecai? Who helps you discern God's activity and calling in your life? Who loves you enough to challenge you when your life starts to drift to a default mission? With whom have you entered into covenant and given that kind of permission to speak that kind of truth that directly to you? While I was in Abilene, I came under the preaching ministry of a man named Lynn Anderson. And through a number of issues, but primarily his preaching ministry, I recognized what my calling was. And I graduated from ACU intending to enter preaching full-time and pay whatever price that meant. But that summer, I interned with a church, and I had a girlfriend. And she was a very pretty girl, and she's a very nice girl. And we had been to some youth gathering that I had helped plan. And you're not going to believe this, but a couple of parents got bent out of shape out of something that wasn't even my fault. And they let me have it. And I was more immature then than I hope I am today. And I got in the car with her and I vented how unfair that was. And she turned and she said, Why do you put up with this? You are so gifted. You could do so many other things. You don't need to go into the ministry. And I knew then, if I was going to stay true to my call, I had to have as a life partner somebody that could speak truth to me about my mission. Not long after that, we broke up. About a year later, I met another really beautiful, sharp, wonderful woman named Jamie. And let me tell you something about my wife. For almost 30 years, every time I've started to drift, God has used her to kick me in the tail. Now, you don't think tail kicking is a spiritual gift, but I'm here to tell you. My wife has the spiritual gift of tail kicking. And you need to be thankful for that. Sometimes it is hard in the moment to see your default mission. But a spirit-filled friend or partner will spot it every time. You know why? Because every time the default mission will avoid the cross. Every time. The default mission will always take you away from the cross. The default mission, if you turned it into a movie, the title would be Mission Not So Difficult. But nobody goes to see a movie called Mission Not So Difficult. God's mission will always call you to face the possibility of death. It did for Jesus. You see, He had a default mission. 
His default mission was to get a crown without a cross. And Satan knew it. Turn stones to bread. Why should you be hungry? You want kingdoms? I can give you kingdoms. The default mission for Jesus was to avoid the cross. He told his disciples one time, I must go to Jerusalem. I must be betrayed at the hands of men and they will crucify me. And Peter pulled him aside and said, don't talk like that. And Jesus turned and said, get behind me, Satan. Because he heard articulated in Peter's mouth. The default mission of the enemy. Any call on your life that guarantees no risk and no sacrifice and no possibility of suffering is a call from the wrong prince. See, difficult times are often the best times to pick up the phone and recommit to your calling. And so... This past year, Lynn Anderson, one of my mentors, contracted cancer, lung cancer. And he's been very near death this past year. And he's still in a battle. And last week at the Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, he shared a brief video testimony that I want you to watch. By the way, some of you that have loved Lynn for years, you're going to be first shocked to realize he doesn't have hair anymore. But I want you to listen. How many times he's going to say the word, so we chose. You don't get to choose your time. You do get to choose your mission. So watch and be blessed. Well, so here I am with cancer. Something I wouldn't have dreamed of a year ago. But last June, I was diagnosed, and within days, a uh, surgeon removed the top two lobes of my right lung, and then months of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. But uh, the shock of the initial diagnosis was overwhelming. Carolyn woke up uh, one morning, and kind of bewildered, couldn't where she was, and she said, now let me see, is it, is it I who have the cancer, or is it he who has the cancer? And then it dawned on her, we both have this cancer. And I kept waking up morning after morning. My first thought was, I've got death in my body. I'm going to, I could die from this. And I told Carolyn about that. And she said, well, of course you do. So do I. So does everybody. But you also have life in your body. And we're going to choose to live life. Around this time, I got an email from our friend Jim McQuiggan over in Ireland. And uh, he first complimented us for uh, noting that the sky hadn't fallen and the sun was still shining and so forth. And then he quoted a line from this old Celtic Irish poem. The greatest sin of all is to call a green leaf gray. So we've chosen to live in the green leaf. We're going to get up every morning, do our very best to pay attention to the graces that God keeps pouring into our lives. And we're not going to let the, uh, the golden moments of living be robbed from us by uh, the possibility of dying.
And we told a lot of our friends, this last eight months has not been easy. But it's still been the most blessed eight months of our lives on many fronts. For example, our uh, our marriage and our family life has grown in, more intimate by fathoms. And then there's the knowledge that people all over the globe are praying for us. That's reassuring. When, when I get where, uh, and sometimes I get where I can't pray, I know the prayers of other people are carrying me along. Wonderful. And then, uh, of course, uh, out of all of this, we've learned a couple of big lessons. Lesson number one, uh, suffering isn't all bad. In fact, it, there's a lot of good in it. And we, we actually suffer on behalf of others and to the glory of God, if we choose to. When, when, when we... Face suffering with grace and with that sense of his abiding presence through all of it. We lend enormous encouragement to people, other people who are suffering. And in suffering even makes us more conscious of the suffering of others. Our suffering. It sensitizes us to them more. Uh, Carolyn and I can't think of, we can't think of one valid reason why we should be exempt from something like this when millions of other people are suffering. I think it was Rabbi Abraham Heschel who said, the man who has never suffered, what does he know anyway? I like that one. And the second big lesson we learn is that death is not the ultimate tragedy. Uh, for example, God may choose to separate this disease from me. Or he may choose to separate me from this disease. Either way is a win-win. Uh, because, again, as my friend Jim McQuiggan says, Oh, Brother Lynn, death is highly overrated, you know. Highly overrated. And so we, we choose to live in the green leaf. God bless you one and all. I think you would agree that I chose a good mentor. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? Beware the default mission. You have been called in time. And I hope you can hear the phone. I hope you're not on autopilot. Perhaps, for some of us, before we can better discern what our mission is, we need to discern what our default mission has been. 
So I'm just going to ask you for a moment to bow your head and pray this prayer. Would you ask God right now to have His Holy Spirit give you illumination? Where does your life drift when you stop living on mission? Ask for that clarity now. God, the deceiver is so skilled in his craft. And our hearts, the Bible says, is deceptive among all things. It's so easy for us to drift and not be aware of our blindness. So illuminate us now. May your spirit make it clear that we want only to get closer to Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. I know. Amen. I'm going to ask you all to stand. We're going to sing another song. And as we encourage each other by singing to each other and to God, I'm going to offer you a chance to come forward right now if you would like to be baptized into Jesus. Let's pray.